So, good evening, and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event on free speech. My name's Peter Dennis. I'm a fellow of the Forum for European Philosophy, and I'm also LSE fellow in the Department, for Philosoph- Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. To discuss this topic, I'm delighted to have with us uh, Lisa Opinionese on my left, who's a novelist and free speech campaigner. Uh, on my right, Ray Langton, Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge University. And on my far uh, right, uh, Stephen Law, Lecturer in Philosophy at Haythrop College, University of London. And on my far left, Peter MacDonald, Professor of English at the University of Oxford. We've got a pretty diverse range of perspectives uh, on offer this evening, and my job will be to keep us on track as well as to offer you the opportunity to join in. Uh, Just a couple of announcements. There's a questionnaire going round, so make sure you get the opportunity to fill that in, and you can just give that back to to a steward on your way out. Um, also, the event, uh, there will be a co- podcast of the event, so you'll be recorded if you're asking questions. That's an official warning. Um, well, by the end of the evening, we hope to have found answers, or at least partial answers, to the following three questions. First of all, why think we've got a right to free speech at all? Is there something that grounds our rights to free speech? Secondly, Um, what are the different ways in which our right to free speech can come under threat? And are the threats to free speech different uh, now than they have been in the past? And thirdly, we'll be looking at how we should balance the right to free speech against other rights. For example, the right to equality or the right to practice your religion. But before we launch into these questions, I'd like to invite each of our panellists to say something about what drew them into thinking about free speech and also a little bit about their their interest in the subject. Uh, So, Peter, let's start with you. Great. Thanks very much, Peter. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I think the main reason why I'm here is that I uh, wrote a book uh, about uh, apartheid censorship called The Literature Police, uh, which certainly drew me into these sorts of debates, um, and uh, partly because it was um, one of the weirdest censorship systems in the history of uh, humankind, um, uh, that particular system. But what I thought I'd begin by saying is that actually it's not just because of that book that I'm drawn into this sort of material and these sorts of questions. Um, and it, uh, there, are, there are three things that I think always in the background to my own uh, thinking and approach to these questions and where, in a sense, I'm coming from with them. And the, one of them is actually quite simple and not at all anything to do with uh, my research directly, but it's simply that I'm a teacher. Um, And as I see it in that way, I'm not simply uh, helping people generally younger than me uh, uh, get knowledge, uh, develop their knowledge, their insight into things. I'm not simply helping them get jobs. I'm also helping them to sharpen their thinking, their writing, and their speaking, uh, to build up their confidence and their sense of credibility, and therefore to be able to speak freely in public. So for me, as a teacher, uh, the freedom of expression, the free speech debate, isn't just an abstract right. It's a daily, uh, it's a daily practice of positive promotion. That's, that's one, one part of my life which I see as part of what uh, I'm doing as a teacher. Um, the second one is that I am a literary academic, uh, but I thought the, maybe one of the things to clear up right from the get-go 
um, is that that doesn't mean that I'm interested in uh, literature because it's fine writing, and it's also not, I'm not interested in literature because it's some or other some strange kind of opinion piece uh, that we can read. Uh, the, the reasons why I'm particularly interested in, uh, in literary work um, as a cultural practice is that it probes uh, the limits of public discourse, uh, often seeking out what's excluded, what's perverse, um, and what can or cannot be said. So it's actually it's often probing those limits. I also think literature is worth taking seriously because it does more than take issue with particular norms. Say, for instance, what we might want to define as obscenity or indeed what we might define as responsible speech. It doesn't simply take issue with those specific norms. Of course, it does that. But it also questions normativity itself. Um, those are the, the reasons why I'm uh, studying it, why I take it seriously, um, and why I think it also has a bearing on these sorts of debates. Um, it's, it's often, of course, been tangled up in these debates in particular ways. And the third thing is, I think something not to forget, um, is that I also approach all of these questions uh, as, a, as an embodied person speaking at this particular moment and uh, as a British citizen, despite the um, strangeness of my accent, which might make you think that I've got a complicated and convoluted background, which is true, um, I nonetheless approach these questions with a sense of being what it is to be a British citizen, and in particular with a sense of, therefore, what a complex legal jurisdictions uh, under which I speak and write, which are, on the one hand, this vast maze called the laws of England and Wales, uh, which Ray and others know better than me, but also, uh, for, the moment, for the moment at least, it's European law uh, and, also, and it's also international law. It's that intersecting uh, network of laws, which uh, um, is a, a part of the effect of being a British citizen, also affects uh, how I approach these questions. Thank you. Lisa? Um, well, that feeds beautifully into what I wanted to say, but, and I think you've said it better. <laughs> so just take everything he says about literature as being true for me as well. I'm, I'm a writer, but I've also been in my time, um, if you like, in some ways a campaigner for free speech, um, in that I was president of English Pen, which is a writer's organization. And... Um, I've been interested in the subject ever since uh, Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses came out and suffered that ultimate killing review uh, from the Ayatollah Khomeini, um, which came as a surprise to many of us who both knew Salman and knew his work and knew him as a winner of the Booker Prize for Midnight's Children, um, which then became the, the Booker of Bookers. Um, and I think the reason we were surprised is that quite a few of us had read the book before its publication or on its publication and could see absolutely um, nothing um, uh, contentious about it or indeed deeply provocative. And that, I think, is because we lived within a tradition of British or European literature, um, which includes the novel that comes out of India, um, written in English. And, and therefore, to us, this book was a book of the imagination, which perhaps stretched limits. Many of us didn't know the ground on which it was based. I know that I read it in proof very early on, and I had no idea even that Mohammed was uh, 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 um, if you like, a character that bore any relationship to the real. He wasn't called by that name. Um, so when did this killing review came and shocked us, um, um, 
a friend and I, Sarah Maitland, decided to do some work on this and to see why this had happened, why this sort of global misunderstanding had taken place. And it became quite clear in that research, and we published a little volume out of, at the time, uh, which actually showed the trajectory of the Rushdie affair, that global politics were involved. And the book had taken on its particular moment because Rushdie had already suffered, if you like, censorship in India. And uh, an Indian politician rang some friends in Bradford at the mosque, and things began to roll from there. So it wasn't so much that the satanic verses had instantly caused offence, a word that became uh, much in public use afterwards, but that it had become uh, a question of religion being used for political purposes, which it can so easily be, and which we know so well from British history itself. Um, Religion was caught up in the Civil War, of course, here, um, in ways which are now being played out differently for different religions globally. Um, Later on, when I came to um, English Pen, we had other kinds of, of, if you like, global problems to hand. And one of them was simply that um, the certain parts of the Muslim population and um, wanted their religion to be taken seriously in the way that race was taken seriously for others. In other words, they wanted religious hatred to play the same part in our law as racial hatred um, and the laws which prevent incitement to that. They wanted um, a prevention of religious hatred Uh, legislation to come into being. And the Labour Party thought this was a good thing to do. Well, a lot of the uh, literature community and indeed the free speech community and anybody who worked for television or in comedy or indeed in any other aspect which engaged with um, the the many freedoms that exist in, in British culture thought this was a bad idea. And we began to campaign against Um, the making of this bill into an act. Um, This book grew out of it, Free Expression is No Offence, which is a book that I put together um, uh, which includes the voices of many writers across the spectrum, from Monica Ali to Salman Rushdie himself to to, um, uh, many others. And we campaigned against the incitement to religious hatred legislation simply because we knew very well that religion is a system of ideas. This wasn't a bill which was ca- um, geared against uh, the, um, to protect the individual as such, but simply the offended uh, sensibility of people who professed a religion and its particular purity and only one aspect of that religion. Something, again, we've seen played out across the world um, in the wake of of, uh, the Satanic Versus affair, but also in the wake of various cartoonings of Mohammed. Cartoons, of course, are much more graphically accessible. Literature often tends to be less accessible, but nonetheless, people claim to have read what's in there and to take offense. Now, in the, pro- in the course of that campaign, many, many things came to light. Um, and if there are lawyers on the panel, they can help me here. Uh, because one of the things that became clear is that harm and hurt are not the same thing. You may be offended. I'm offended by a great many things that I see on the screen or 
read, some of them extremely petty. Um, I don't like, for example, to use the word fuck, which I've just used, uh, in public in the wrong place because I have a certain kind of civility which comes into play. On the other hand, if I go and hear a stand-up comic, a comic, I'm quite happy to hear that word expressed you know, as often as need me because it's part of that form. Um, and we may want to talk about genre and form later on and where certain kinds of language and certain kinds of expression takes place. Um, so I, I'm not going to go on about that, but in the course of campaigning for uh, free speech within um, uh, English pen and um, to try and protect the freedom of, of the imagination and all the things you said about literature. We also managed to get rid of the Blasphemy Act because one of the things that the Muslim campaigning groups were saying in this country was simply that, well, you know, Christianity is protected. And it's true that there was a very moribund law still in place um, during the 2000s um, called the blasphemy law. Um, there was also sedition and seditious libel in play, and there were many libel laws, the libel law itself, which um, was used um, by a great many players, for example, um, people who we called libel tourists who would come into this country to prosecute um, what... Um, was not enacted on this terrain. Um, and the libel laws were actually quite um, good for lawyers. They were quite good for international visitors. They were quite good for people who uh, had a lot of money and could bring um, actions to silence others. Um, so, for example, the Guardian was gagged for three years, was it two or three years, by a, a, a very large oil company called Trafigura and couldn't even speak about this because an injunction, which was a super injunction, was taken out and silenced them. So we campaigned to change the libel laws and managed to, great, to, to get a great many of the things that we wanted changed, public interest offence and so on. On, um, to protect the area of free speech and free expression um, by the Defamation Act 2013. We can, we can use all of this in questions later on, and indeed many of you will want to come back. So all I'm saying here, would like to say here and to put on the table, is that as a writer and as a campaigner, I know that free speech is never altogether free. Uh, we know that it's not free because as John Stuart Will Mill told us, we all comply with convention. As writers, we comply with genre <laughs> and various forms. Um, there are also regulations that bind us in, in the uh, ways of civil society. We don't actually want necessarily to attack people at all points, but the imagination may want to be free within the constraints of fiction or various other forms. Um, we also know, as Freud has shown us, that we are never altogether free of these prohibitions which we internalize. The first words you say to children are often no. <laughs> um, and we don't like to hear speech that we don't like. So th this is, too is in play. I will stop because this will come back later. Ray, can you tell us about your perspective? Well, I became interested in the free speech topic when I started thinking philosophically, I am a philosophy professor started thinking philosophically about how the speech of some people can silence the, speak, 
the speech of others. In fact, we've heard some examples. We've had the, the speech of apartheid law silencing and censoring. We've had the speech of Ayatollah Khomeini um, uh, issuing the fatwa, which is... Um, both of those are cases of authoritative speech that silences, um, that's attempting to silence the speech of other, uh, of other people, in this case writers and many people who should not be silenced. I'm interested in that question more widely, though, because I'm, I think that sometimes the speech of some can silence the speech of others when the silencing speech is not the speech of a government or a law or a state. Um, sometimes this can happen uh, when the media uh, tells lies or promotes um, falsehoods about certain groups. So I was asked to testify to the Leverson inquiry uh, about um, uh, media ethics. And in connection with that, when I was doing my homework, I was looking at some of the evidence that had been submitted. And for some reason, this particular headline from a tabloid really stuck in my mind. Some of you might know about it. Um, Asylum seekers barbecue the Queen's swans. Anyone heard of that? <laughs> anyway, so I'm a philosopher, so I was very interested in that for a number of reasons. One is, where are the quantifiers? You know, how many asylum seekers barbecue the Queen's swans? Some? Most? All? It has a form that makes it very hard to pin down how many of this group were barbecuing the Queen's swans. And it's such a funny thing to say about them anyway. The Queen's swans? Gosh, you have to be a real patriot to know that the swans belong to the Queen. Anyway, so so uh, so it's a, it was a hilarious headline which um, um, feeds into stereotypes partly because of its grammar. Um, that's philosophically interesting. Certain ways we use words feed into stereotypical thinking about groups in ways that then um, make lives for members of those groups much harder to live. They have to live under the shadow of prejudice, and it also makes them hard. To, it makes it hard for them to answer the speech. By the way, not even one asylum seeker barbecued any of the queen swans. <laughs> so one thing to think about. Um, was, I mean, I think there was some story about some suspicious person with a feathered creature in a... Anyway, it doesn't even matter. The, when we're thinking about uh, free speech, we need to think about how speech of certain sorts of authoritative speech speakers, which include uh, the, um, legislators, they include uh, leaders like the Ayatollah, but also include... Um, others in our society who have authority, authoritative speech can do stuff with words that um, can be quite uh, serious to the, for the people concerned. That can, might be individuals and it might be actually groups. So I'm interested in media ethics because I think the media has an important role to play in how we view other groups. And that, this includes, as I just said, the way in which we talk about them, label them, label them as asylum seekers, Wait, label people in the States. I've just moved from MIT just a couple of years ago, label people as sort of welfare queens. Um, certain, it's, it's not okay for the media to have a headlines with, you know, the N word in the headline anymore. Nevertheless, there are various coded references to, uh, social, uh, to social groups, sometimes um, ethnic groups, sometimes religious groups, sometimes um, uh, racial groups, uh, sometimes it's a matter of gender. They, um, there are ways of describing members of these groups that 
um, are generic. They've, they make you think not about the particular individual, but about them as a type. And under, the, under cover of that, uh, myths about them are promoted. And some of those myths... Uh, as I say, damage their equal standing, make it hard to live as, a, as an equal citizen. Some of them also silence. One issue that interests me um, is um, how um, ordinary speech that we participate in and that the media participates in can um, silence the speech of others, sometimes because it's an outright lie, Obviously, if someone tells a lie about what you mean by something, that can silence you because when you say what you think you mean, people are not going to, even though you say the right word, it's not going to work. One place where, that interests me where this comes out is in, um, um, in the context of sexual violence. So uh, sexual violence, I believe, is an extremely serious problem, um, partly because it's partly because it isn't taken seriously. Recently, I was looking through a report that the Children's Commissioner um, commissioned um, about uh, young people's views about consent, and then a few days later, I looked through the Sexual Offences Act. The mismatch was extraordinary. Nobody knows what consent means. Nobody knows that it doesn't matter what you're wearing. It um, if you're drunk, that you're not able to consent. It's rape if you're drunk. So there's a huge mismatch uh, between uh, the legal reality and people's perceptions. Now, why is that an issue about silence? Because a woman who is saying no and meaning no does not get to have her words count as a refusal. That is a very vivid sort of silence, in my view. This tells you where I'm coming from. It tells you that um, I see a certain kind of continuity between authority structures that are, that are the bread and butter of everyday life and the authority structures that are running the laws and the governments. Of course they're not the same, and of course governments and laws have great powers that, that the rest of us don't have. Nevertheless, um, we need to think about what words can do and how people can be silenced in ways that we might not at first notice. I'll shut up. Thanks. Thanks. Stephen, how did you get into thinking about this topic? Um, well, uh, I am a philosopher, uh, but I'm not, uh, not a political philosopher, as will probably quickly become apparent. <laughs> um, I'm invited here, I think, today probably because I, I am an atheist and I'm a, a humanist, and um, I blog for Centre for Inquiry, which is a kind of secular humanist organisation in the United States, and I have um, posted a few blogs on uh, free speech, particularly relating to uh, the Charlie Hebdo uh, affair. Um, so maybe I should say a little bit about that or my views on that. Um, I, clearly, there are countries around the world in which um, free speech is, is heavily curtailed. Um, sometimes uh, religion uh, very powerfully restricts the range of things that you're allowed to say uh, through state mechanisms, uh, in Saudi Arabia, for example, Rafe Badawi is currently in jail um, simply because he set up a forum in which other Saudis could express their views openly. Fairly, fairly tame, modest, sensible views were being expressed in this, in this way. And uh, he now faces public floggings and possibly a death sentence. And clearly that's absolutely horrific, and I'm against that. Um, there's nothing like that here, obviously. 
Um, but whilst there isn't uh, a legal threat hanging over our heads, there has for the last 30 years been another kind of threat hanging over our heads far as expressing opinions about religion is concerned. And uh, it began with the Rushdie uh, affair. Um, if you were to wander the, uh, my imaginary gallery of satire, you'll find uh, rooms dedicated to great political satire, to uh, works of religious satire, and then you come to the room which displays the work satirising Islam, and you find the walls are strangely bare. <clears throat> Why are they, you know, perhaps a couple of Charlie Hebdo cartoons are hanging, but very, very little else. Why are those rooms bare? Because we're scared. Uh, let's be honest, very many of us are terrified of saying what we think about Islam, of satirising Islam, and I'm very disturbed by that. So it's not a legal constraint that is operating here, but another kind of constraint. I think that satire is uh, very important. <clears throat> it's not just having a joke at someone else's expense. Um, satire can be cheap and tacky and indeed racist and unpleasant, but it can also be much, much more than that. Uh, one of my favourite uh, Hans Christian Andersen stories is the story of uh, the emperor's new clothes, where the emperor decks himself out with finery and parades around town, finery that can only be seen by those who are, uh, are sophisticated enough to detect the clothing. <clears throat> and, of course, everyone applauds and uh, admires his wonderful clothes until a small boy points and laughs, and that breaks the spell. Uh, there was this overweening deference and respect which blinded everyone to the truth, and suddenly the spell is broken by somebody who simply stands up and laughs and that shatters the spell and we can, for, a, for a moment we can see the truth. Now those that demand overweening respect and deference, uh, they are the most deserving <laughs> of having a small boy stand up and laugh at them, it seems to me. It's that, those are the people that we really should be pointing the finger at and laughing at. And, you know, Charlie Hebdo. <clears throat> was one such small boy. Uh, and unfortunately, he paid the, paid the price for doing that. I'm fearful that... Uh, obviously, I'm, I don't like this situation in which so many people are now very afraid. I think we should probably be doing something about it. We could talk about exactly what uh, in the discussion to come. I suppose the other thing that I would want to say is that... I don't think that there's anything special about religious belief systems that means that they are deserving of any special privileges compared to, say, other political belief systems. After all, religious systems very often are political <laughs> systems. Uh, religions uh, promote views that are very strongly political, views about women, views about gay people, views about charity, views about our duties to those less fortunate than ourselves, and so on. These are very highly political organisations, religions. Um, it seems to me that those political organisations 
need satire. It's important that there's satire going on, and I can't see that there's anything about religion that means that it deserves any kind of special protection from satire. Perhaps somebody will be able to convince me otherwise during the course of the evening. Um, But I'd be interested if you can think up some reason why we should be particularly respectful or deferential towards or show special respect to political beliefs that have had the supernatural fairy dust of religion sprinkled on top of them. I don't see that the supernatural fairy dust adds anything so far as requiring greater respect is concerned. Thanks, Stephen. Well, let's get into the first of our questions, which is what grounds the right to free speech? What could we say to somebody that doubted that there is any such right? Uh, Ray, let's start with you. Yeah, so I want to uh, raise the question, what is the point of free speech? And I don't mean that as in the sort of, oh, what's the point, um, um, sceptical tone. I mean, it has a point, and what is that point? Sometimes people think... You don't need to ask about its point. It's just some kind of self-evident absolute. But actually, not even in the US with the First Amendment do they have that view. Um, So thinking about the point of free speech, um, a number of important values have been associated with free speech. I'm not going to spend the evening talking about all of them, but... um, as Lisa said already, J.S. Mill has been a very important founding figure in our understanding of free speech. Mill's famous argument from truth, which is really an argument from knowledge, says unless people are free to speak their minds, unless there's freedom of, of opinion and freedom of expression of opinion, then an opinion may be ruled out, which for all we know might be true. He said, he added, even if it's false, um, nevertheless, it's worth having the false opinion because the false opinion can make us think harder about the truth that we already believe. It makes us think harder about the reasons why we might have believed it in the first place. As you can see, I'm ad-libbing rather freely. There are actually sort of four arguments from truth. But they are basically arguments about knowledge, that unless we have freedom of opinion and freedom to express our opinions, um, then um, we some truths are going to be hidden from us that might otherwise have been revealed. And even if only some falsehoods come up, um, nevertheless, that's going to help our knowledge because it's make, it's, it'll make us think harder about what it is we do know. Otherwise, it, we're just resting on prejudice, he said. Otherwise, what we believe is just has the status of a prejudice. So that's the argument from knowledge. And I hope you see right away that what that perspective is going to do is it's going to give a special priority to speech that involves knowledge, speech that involves knowledge. Now, what sort of knowledge? Um, Well, some knowledge is going to be pretty trivial. Philosophers are very good at generating some trivial bits of knowledge. Um, I mean, well, identifying some, P and P and P and P. Anyway, we're not going to talk about those very trivial bits of knowledge. Um, One um, sort of knowledge that is extremely important is the knowledge of how how to live one's life. That's, you know, that's an old Aristotelian ideal, not just Aristotelian. We all want to know how to live our lives, and it takes knowledge to know how to do that. A very important um, argument connected with knowledge is that certain sorts of knowledge are needed for democracy. 
So why is knowledge needed for democracy? Because, and here we have <laughs> the thought, we need to know what those people are up to, those people who are governing us. If we don't know what they're up to, how can we vote? I mean, votes, voting is meaningless unless it's informed voting. Voting means absolutely nothing unless you know who, the, who you're voting for and know what they're going to do. So that's where our speech comes in. Um, that's where the importance of political speech um, comes in, which you were rightly emphasizing, that political speech is, is especially important because without uh, free political speech, um, you can't talk to each other about the reasons for voting for person A or, or B, and, and you, without the media holding uh, those in charge accountable, there's no way to know whether they are... Um, whether they are doing what they say, whether they're keeping their promises, whether they are working, you know, hand in glove with, you know, some corporation. Over, anyway, so we, so keeping the bastards honest. Sorry, I'm Australian as well as English. <laughs> Keep the bastards honest. The honesty function is a knowledge function, and that is one of the most important functions of free speech. And I hope you see that here too. Um, one of the most important things is going to be um, the. Um, principles that are going to support knowledge. There are other reasons for the point of speech as well. I, some people think equality is really important. You shouldn't just rule someone out. Be, um, ruling someone out is making a, an exception of them that they don't deserve. Others think that it's about autonomy. It's about sort of personal expression. Um, I think that knowledge and democracy are the most important, and I think I should leave it there. Thanks. Great. So knowledge and democracy may end up compiling a short little list of reasons why free speech is important. Peter, would you like to add anything to that? Um, I think I'd just add uh, two things, really. One is... Uh, that it won't surprise you because coming from the literary side, I'm going to be less... Uh, I've, I've, this is not a, uh, against the notion that it's knowledge-based. I think that's absolutely vital and essential. In fact, I'll, I'll add something a bit in a moment. But I would put it slightly differently from the literary side. Uh, if you, if you, why, why has literature often been committed to uh, uh, free speech and why have writers with organizations like Penn and so on have got a long history of writers being part of civil society um, and seeing themselves as part of civil society, I, I should say sometimes they get caught up in a certain rhetoric about themselves of which I'm skeptical about as well. Um, I, I'm not, I don't completely buy writers' self-presentation uh, as straightforwardly heroic against these huge dark forces of evil out there. I'm a little bit skeptical about some of that rhetoric. But uh, when it comes to that, it's really that literature has to do not so much necessarily with knowledge per se or with truth in, in, that, in that sense, but with ways of thinking and, and with, on a recognition that, for instance, that the ways in which we speak or write, the way in which we use language is intimately connected to that. So that changing the ways in which we think and uh, um, understanding those sorts of processes, innovating in that way, being inventive with how we think, uh, and not knowing quite where that's going is also vital to uh, what some writers have seen, for instance, as the link between literature and democracy. Uh, that, that sort of sense, that exploratory sense. So the protocols of knowledge, which, which a philosopher might feel quite secure about, uh, certainly some of the uh, uh, writers that... Um, I'm interested in uh, are less secure about those, and I should probably now confess that I am uh, uh, one of those uh, small group of people who think that Finnegan's Wake is the most dangerous book in the world, uh, if only we knew how to read it. Um, so that's, that's the one thing I would say. Uh, the one quality... see the cartoons. Yeah. 
The one qualification I would add to all of this is just uh, for any anthropologists in the audience, um, we often, when we're thinking about uh, um, um, the freedom of expression and democracy, we can often think that it's intimately linked uh, to that, and it is quite clearly. You know, the emergence of certain forms of civil society in the 18th century, obviously crucial, there's all those sorts of things, that history, which is vitally important. But as anthropologists have shown us, there's also been in uh, African oral traditions um, a certain mistakenly called praise poets who were actually quite often the opposite. They weren't praise poets. They were part of, uh, they were given a kind of license, a bit like, not completely comparable to a fool in in a Renaissance court, a license to speak with a freedom that was more or less not allowed to anyone else. Uh, In the interests, again, of keeping the chief or the king uh, in check and uh, honest and, uh, you know, the emperor reminding that the king or the chief every now and again that there's a naked body underneath all the headdresses and so on. Um, so the, so I, I wouldn't be just too... Uh, um, uh, I'd be c- concerned about closing down uh, the sense that um, notions, different notions of the freedom of expression have actually evolved in different cultures at different times. It isn't exclusively linked to the emergence of a certain European conception of de- democracy, say, in the 18th century. Yeah. Great. Well, Lisa, as a writer and campaigner, you must have been asked this question, what's the point of free speech? Why think it matters? Well, I think from the point of view of literature, it matters simply because the people who are in power often think that it's necessary to silence those who are either sceptical of that power or have imaginative resources to communicate to everyone. Um, I think, you know... The Papal Index contains a great list of banned books which actually make up the entire inheritance of literature in Europe. Um, you know, just about every French novel you've ever read is on there, and it extends as far as Simone de Beauvoir. So um, women's position is always um, one for questioning when it comes to authority versus free speech. I think imaginative literature does something very important um, to extend what you've said. I think it actually helps to build up our internal life, our inner life, so that we begin to hear other voices. We learn what other people sound like from the inside. And that's a a terribly important aptitude, if you like, a terribly important part of the way in which we become social beings and are able to live together in society. I think one of the great differences um, between East and West and the way in which certain Western literature has, over the course of the last uh, century and a half, uh, been received in the East is that they're simply not used to that tradition in that way. And so the, the space of the imagination, the space of what constitutes a challenge, if you like, to received opinion, received wisdom, um, authority, religious structures, is very different in, in both spaces. And the, the notion of the individual um, Um, internal life, the fact that we may actually not even always agree with ourselves (laughs) um, and that that we carry on this this internal war um, which is then exteriorized is something which is not familiar to everyone. Well, if you wanted to universalize, maybe it is, but I suspect it's also learned by the way in which we tell each other stories um, and imaginative literature comes into play. And that's why I think the kind of free imaginative speech is important. As a woman, um, and, and just to extend some of the things that you were saying before, I think um, 
free speech is extremely important because women have traditionally, um, in the Western tradition as well, within Christianity and Judaism, been silenced. Um, if you think of the, you know, the fall, it's based on Eve, you know, take picking the fruit of knowledge and giving it to her companion. Uh, no, lady, shut up. You know, knowledge is not for you. Um, and, and this is still the case, even though women, of course, are, are much freer, and particularly in the West, um, are much freer than they ever have been. There's still a, a very great difficulty, I think, for women to take on public speech, um, to speak as if we spoke for everyone, um, in the same way that men have quite easily, not men of all classes, because class comes into that too, have done so. I mean, when I hear David Cameron, I hear the voice of somebody who is used to speaking in public and having his utterances given credibility, um, less so because we have a free press. When I hear the voice of some of the younger women in Parliament, it's quite clear that they don't yet quite know how to do that and how to assume the we voice in, in the same way. So... Um, that's why I believe in free speech. I mean, I think it's important. Fantastic. I could give you a fantastic quote. Do you want me to quote Oliver Wendell Holmes? Okay, a great American jurist who rose to the Supreme Court and in one of his early judgments in the Supreme Court dissented with what the other judges had uh, decided. Uh, 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 this was an appeal brought by... Um, you know, four guys who had thrown leaflets down from a high building. This is the Abrams case. And the leaflets, one of which was in Yiddish and the other one of which was in English, defended the Russian Revolution. We're in 1918. And they didn't want um, um, the Americans to counter the forces of the revolution in Russia. They wanted them to stay at home or to support it. And um, the, uh, they, were, they were taken in under the Espionage Act and of, that, uh, of that time. And Holmes, uh, who's a great jurist, I think, dissented from the group opinion and said, um, the um, ultimate good is better reached by free, a free trade in ideas. The best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. And that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. And he said that we need to remain eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death unless they so imminently threaten immediate interference with the lawful and pressing purposes of the law that an immediate check is required to save the country. And, you know, if we talk about surveillance um, as it now exists uh, in our societies, then perhaps we should come back to Oliver Wendell Holmes and the, the, you know, the, the imminent present danger, uh, which is the only curb on free speech in his view. Fantastic. So democracy, knowledge, accountability, equality, freedom to develop an inner life and imagine the inner life of other people. Stephen, would you, would you dissent or, or add other things to that list? Um, that all sounds great, doesn't it? It's hard to, <laughs> hard to disagree. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I mean, clearly there's a consensus uh, here about the importance of free speech uh, a free press and so on. Um, but I suspect you don't just need that. Um, there was a 
survey done recently. I can't remember the name of the survey, but it was a survey that looked at um, just how accurate British people's beliefs are about this, that, and the other thing. And uh, it turned out that the British population is just spectacularly wrong. <laughs> they really get it dramatically wrong on uh, a number of um, different uh, topics. And uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I do remember that high on that list of topics were uh, things like immigration, <laughs> uh, rates of teen pregnancy, benefits, benefit fraud, uh, and so on. Now, I'm willing to bet money that tomorrow's Daily Mail front page will have one of those topics on it, um, and that that will be a very... Uh, one-sided and potentially highly misleading uh, front page. So, you know, clearly we do, in many ways, we do have a, a very, very free press. We have a press that is free to, free to give us a very narrow range of opinion and endlessly repeat it to us over and over and over again until we accept it more or less uncritically. We have a press that is free to uh, represent women to us in extremely damaging ways for women over and over and over and again. And, uh, that's uh, freedom. So I'm just chucking some grit in the oyster now. You might, you might think that, that these are, this is a freedom too far, surely. <laughs> do we really want a press that, that, that is that free? Or do we want a free, a free press and other things too in order to try and curb those kinds of uh, problems? Uh, it's clear that just allowing the press to do whatever it's, it likes is not nearly enough in order to have a properly, you know, health, healthily functioning democracy. <clears throat> so that's the anti-free speech argument. So I'm suggesting we shut all the papers down. <laughs> and I'll just uh, print everything myself. In okay, well, in <laughs> interest of free speech, let's bring in our audience. If you've got a question or a point you'd like to make, please uh, raise your hand. I'll ask you to be as succinct as possible so we try and get, a few, get around a few of you and get through as much uh, as we can, particularly if you've got perhaps particular questions for the panel or, or dissenting voices. So there's a gentleman in the middle with a red tie. If you wait for the microphone to come to you, that would be great because you, then you can be One, on the podcast. <laughs> okay. we've, um, we've heard, um, yeah, there's a consensus. Uh, free speech is good. Um, I quite like uh, the argument that not only does it hold people to account, but also... Um, a false um, idea or opinion can actually make us appreciate what is true or make us um, uh, better examine what we know or what we think we know. That's all fine. What about, I, I was uh, uh, on the way here reading um, a brilliant uh, newspaper, The Evening Standard, and uh, there was an article about um, a friend of um, humanity, uh, Anjum uh, Childry, and it was talking about how it cost the Met probably around a million pounds. I don't know over what period uh, they're measuring, but that it's it's the sort of things that uh, that particular individual um, espouses. What he says, his his arguments, and you know whether it be in praise of of Sharia law, even. Uh, you know, paedophilia, things like that. It's those sorts of things 
that challenge uh, the consensus and challenge people's views on uh, the, you know, the limits of free speech and acceptability. Um, and indeed, the government are acting in part trying to uh, address some of the things that are being expressed by these so-called radical preachers. Um, and what we're seeing is a government that's concerned about the impact that the freedom of speech of these individuals can have, which kind of infantilizes us, turns us into to children, um, uh, it could be argued. So the counter-argument, obviously, are the da- is the danger of speech, how damaging it can be to a society, the interests of a state, um, and... You know, I, is freedom of speech something which should be dependent upon? I don't know we mentioned in newspapers and things like that. Uh, one's knowledge of a subject is it too dangerous for the great unwashed? Being provocative. Thank you. We'll take three or four uh, points and questions uh, in a row. There's a gentleman at the back in a red t-shirt. Oh, okay. Uh, I'd just like to take up um, uh, Dr. Law. He asked uh, why we should be respectful for religion and uh, also uh, about Charlie Hebden and also the satanic verses. Well, there's a difference between um, freedom of speech and being gratuitously offensive. Now, if we take uh, the uh, satanic verses, what you didn't uh, mention is that uh, the prostitutes in the uh, satanic verses uh, were uh, the names of the prophet's wives. Now, I can quite concede that um, would cause offence. And likewise, in a religion which um, does not uh, depict uh, pictures of everyone or should not be uh, pictures of anyone, uh, you have cartoons of the prophets, uh, of the prophet rather. Um, these uh, should also be taken in the context that Islam all over the world in the Middle East is being attacked. It's being attacked by the Israelis, by the Americans, uh, by us, not only just verbally, but with bombs. Uh, they are on the defensive and that is uh, the main thing that I wanted to put. But you said, uh, you know, that you stopped uh, the uh, blasphemy laws. Well, I'd uh, say that uh, this was a retrograde step because um, uh, blasphemy laws stops religion being attacked. And why should you uh, cause a gratuitous offence just as your cartoons have, just as the satanic verses has? Thank you. Thank you. Other points, uh, questions? Uh, Yes, gentlemen, there, the second from the back. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for holding this kind of forum. Uh, it's necessary for us to have a free, open discussion about issues like this. First of all, I'm an Ahmadi Muslim. So, if anyone has heard of the Ahmadis, we, uh, the Ahmadi community is a community of Muslims who was declared as non-Muslims uh, in Pakistan and by Saudi Arabia. And in fact, in many countries, uh, they, the offence of being an Ahmadi is worthy of being killed. Uh, we can't call ourselves Muslims, we can't use any uh, Islamic terminology, etc. Et you can look us up by all means. That wasn't a plug, it's a general comment. Um, <laughs> so I'm all too familiar with 
uh, what the perversion or the distortion of the freedom of speech or the freedom of expression can have on people as individuals and on societies as a whole. But at the same time, I also understand that I believe, it's actually my, it's my belief, it's my fundamental understanding as a human that we should endeavor to become a more, a, a community which is more like a family rather than a group of people put together. I, I went to Paris uh, a month ago uh, to the Charlie Hebdo offices uh, to put, give my condolences. I spoke to the police officers that was there. We actually did a program on the freedom of speech condemning absolutely what happened to Charlie Hebdo. But at the same time, I also condemn what he did. So I completely understand when somebody says that something against the freedom of speech. I mean, someone saying one thing doesn't deserve for that person to be killed in any way, shape or form. Again, with, the, uh, with, with Salman Rushdie and the satanic verses, our community actually wrote a book in response to what he said, as opposed to going out and killing him. So I understand that. But the question that I wanted to ask, I, I blabber, I do that often. Um, what is the distinction between free speech and hate speech? And how do we use and utilize our freedoms of expression to actually make a more peaceful society? Thank you. Thanks. I think we've got time for one more question. Thank you. Yeah, there's a gentleman at the, back, at the front here, sorry, with the grey hoodie. Second row. Um, hello. I'd just like to say a point that John Stuart Mill um, said um, in On Liberty, which is that a society has to reach a specific level of intellectual maturity before they can even benefit from the freedom of speech. So my question was that in the light of events like the who can draw the best picture of Prophet Muhammad um, contest in Dallas, Texas, um, are we as a Western society at a sufficient um, intellectual maturity to benefit from, from free speech? And if not, is this the education system's fault? Is this, is this, the, mass me is this the mass media's fault? Um, yeah, that's it. Okay. Thank you very much. So a lot of the questions that came out have to do with how the right to free speech can be balanced against other rights. For example, the right not to be offended, the right to practice your religion, uh, whether there's a distinction between free speech and hate speech, whether some kinds of so-called free speech cross a line, cross over into something called uh, hate speech. And also, uh, to go back to the first point, whether free speech can be dangerous. Now, this is one of the topics, one of our key questions that we want to talk about. So perhaps what we'll do is invite the panel to respond to some of these questions, and we'll also press ahead into discussing that question of how to balance the right to free speech against other rights. Um, Stephen, there was a question directly to you. So why don't you okay. start us off uh, about okay. the right to cause offence? Yes. Well, I think if I've understood your point correctly, you're, what you're concerned about is gratuitous offence. That was the expression you used, causing gratuitous offence. So I suppose that means sort of going out of your way to deliberately offend and upset somebody. Uh, that's the point of it. That's the reason that you're doing it. Now, um, I... I I don't necessarily approve of that at all, but it, it's not at all clear to me that satirising religion is necessarily aiming to do that. And you, In fact, usually it's not. That's not the aim of satire. The person that's doing the, the, the satire is not going out there deliberately trying to upset somebody. They are attempting to 
illuminate the situation, get people to you know, shatter the illusion, break the spell, so that for a brief moment you can see things from a different angle. And that's often very effective when it comes to those who demand overweening respect and are particularly pompous and self-aggrandizing. And religious people aren't always like that, but very many of them are. And it seems to me that satire is an entirely appropriate tool to use under those circumstances. Now, um, the other point you made was that... I mean, let me just add that... Do you think that there's something special about religion that means that whilst it's, you know, it's unacceptable to satirise religion in that kind of way, it's perfectly acceptable to satirise political beliefs. I mean, every other day, Steve Bell draws David Cameron with a great big pink condom drawn over the top of his head. He looks absolutely ridiculous. Imagine how his wife and kids feel when they see that. The insult, the offence that must be caused to that family. When Steve Bell draws that cartoon, is he intending to upset Mrs Cameron and those kids? No, that is not the intention. He's intending to do something quite different. It may be that immense offence is caused to those people, but that is not what he is aiming at. And it's important that he carries on doing it despite the offence that is caused. And I think the same is true of the satire of religion. Uh, You made the point, I think you were making the point that Islam... Around the world, Muslims are being attacked, vilified, and so on. We're punching down, to use the expression. Uh, Will Self said, uh, look, you know, good satire should be uh, afflicting the comfortable and uh, comforting the afflicted, not the other way around, right? And that's what you're doing when you satirise satirize Muslims, because they're very much uh, a persecuted minority. Now, of course, in some places they are a persecuted minority. In, very much, in, in other cases, they are very much those doing the persecuting. Um, are, should we not punch down? Um, Graham Lenehan, the, the, the comedy writer, he said, look, what good satire does is it punches in every direction, up, down, it, it just punches, right? Um, and I, I think that's right. I don't think we should only uh, uh, punch up. I think it's okay to punch down. I think it would, you would be a poor satirist if you only ever punched down. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, if you're really going to ban the punching, punching down, think about this. In the United States of America, there are minorities that are distrusted and vilified. Muslims are such a minority. Atheists are even more distrusted and vilified. Right? Uh, 35% of Americans would not like to see their child marry a Muslim. 47% of, of Americans would not want to see their child marry an atheist. Now, no punching down then. We mustn't, uh, we mustn't satirise the atheists and their beliefs. Uh, no, that's absolutely absurd. Um, of course you, you can satirise atheist beliefs. The, the, what I think what's really going on here is that we're, we're hunting around, people are hunting around to try and justify a kind of gut feeling that somehow we're doing something wrong if we satirise religion and in particular Islam. But that's not a good justification. Part of the problem here is that we have this baggage, the anaesthetic of familiarity. We have for centuries privileged religion. And the fact is that when you think about it, that privilege is not justified. 
And you can hunt around for these reasons to try and shore up your instinct that somehow we're doing something wrong in this instinct. But ultimately, I can't see that there's a good case for it. It seems to me that uh, it's open season on religious beliefs, political beliefs, any other beliefs. They should all be open to satire. Some of it's crap satire. Some of it's poisonous racist satire. But there should be no uh, illegality involved in satirising. And we certainly shouldn't uh, stop punching against those whose beliefs are extremely poisonous. Uh, remember that to attack a belief is not necessary to attack the person who holds the belief. Though liberals tend to make that distinction, it's a very important distinction. I realise it's a little bit murky, but it's you know, retained that thought. Just because I satirise an Islamic belief doesn't mean that I'm actually invoking hatred against Muslims or anything like that. Of course, I'm not doing that. Certainly, I shouldn't be doing that. Ray, can I bring you in here? Um, I just wanted to disagree with something the previous speaker said. <laughs> anyway, so, um, I mean, one, because I thought that, um, I mean, a number of very interesting and important points have come up in the questions that we've just heard. Um, but one of, one of the points that actually you didn't address in your response was there can be reasons other than fear for refraining from um, publishing the, or putting up the um, sorts of images that, that are in question. And I think that that's absolutely right. There can, and so I thought that was absolutely right in what you said, that there, can, that there are reasons other than fear. They can be reasons of respect or reasons of concern um, that concern for feeding into stereotypes um, of exactly the sort that um, have the pernicious effects we were talking about earlier, someone who refrains from that is not being a coward. Someone who refrains from publishing for that reason is not being a coward. They're not thinking, oh gosh, I'm, it's so terrifying, I'd better just shut up. They're thinking... There is so much prejudice against this group anyway. Why should I be fanning the flames like this? I mean, there's a, there are ways in which our speech acts feed into prejudice and there are ways in which we can guard against it. And one thing that concerns me about every side on this particular debate is the, the level of sort of uh, righteousness, both on the religious side, I completely agree about the dangers of that, the, right, the sort of self-righteousness there, and the level of righteousness on the side of, of those who, like the, like the Texas competition, I mean, that was ridiculous, that this New York group would travel to Texas to a town specifically that had a large Muslim population to, um, to prove a point. I mean, this brings up a very important issue, which is that sometimes we have legal rights to do something that we might not wish to exercise for good reasons. You have legal rights to do all sorts of things. Probably you won't want to exercise all of them. I mean, you've got a legal right to lie to your best friends. You've got a legal right to sort of cheat on your, cheat on your partner as much as you like. No one's going to put you in jail for it. doesn't mean you should do it. So we've got all sorts of reasons um, to distinguish between the legal rights that we have and when, as a matter of good judgment, it's a good idea to exercise them. So I'm not denying that there's an important function of satire. I do have sympathy for the punching up um, principle that, because I think what matters most in a, in a democracy is being able to hold accountable the people in power over us. Um, but I think that um, this is a, an important point that, needs, that we need to... Um, 
you wanted us to sort of balance against... So just let me... There are many things to balance. I'm not going to bring them all in. I just want to put out the issue of moral responsibility and legal right and how... Um, balancing them um, can be a tricky business and not everyone will agree but it's you don't just read off what you should do morally speaking from what you have a legal right to do Stephen, let's give you the right to reply and then we'll yeah, go well, to Lisa. I, I think I agree with pretty much everything there. And I, actually, I think that if I just spell out my position, it will turn out that uh, Ray and I don't really disagree. Um, so my, when I was talking about fear, I, was, I, was, I had a kind of art gallery analogy running where I was imagining we were wandering around looking at the art satirising Christian belief, the art satirising mm. Jewish belief, and then we get to the Islamic gallery and, oh dear, it's remarkably bare. And I explained the bare walls there in terms of fear and that is the appropriate explanation because the walls for the Christian gallery and the Jewish gallery are absolutely burgeoning with, with art and yet there's just as much you know the issues of respect and sensitivity have not prevented that satire being displayed I am in agreement with you right that we should be very careful about what we satirize, satirize and how I think that uh, the, just going out and gratuitously offending Muslims is pointless and dangerous and I, I will point the finger wag the finger at those who do that that. But not, not everyone that satirises Islam is doing that. That is not the point of it. And I'm very... My, my, my main concern is that we should not become overly concerned with respect to the point where we, are, we dare not uh, satirise a religious belief, Islamic or otherwise, either for fear or for or fear of causing offence if actually we wouldn't care less if it wasn't a religious belief but it was merely some atheist's belief or some other political belief or whatever it might happen to be. Why do religious beliefs deserve special protection? Uh, maybe they do, but I, it's not clear to me why they do. Lisa, let's go to you. Okay, well, this, the, there's a lot to say here and there were a lot of extremely good questions. The first thing I'd like to say is that I'm a great believer in civility, in discourse, as well as in all kinds of political um, and state forms. I mean, the things that we do to one another in public are terribly important. And the way in which we behave, in which we behave is terribly important. And it is better for people to behave well towards one another. Um, that's a given. But I do not think that the way in which we uh, say the satanic ver verses, I could say Brick Lane, um, could say Charlie Hebdo, um, not that I think all of those things are equal, um, but the way in which these things have been attacked by people who think that they have gone too far, that they've deliberately um, acted in a way which is religiously or racially provocative, I think is mistaken. Because, again, if you do your history work on this, you will come up with something quite different. Um, Satanic Verses was a, is a very difficult novel, even for ordinary educated English readers. The people who... There is no right not to be offended. That is not a competing right. Um, because if there were, then... Um, I would never, never 
allow the Daily Mail to be published. What happens is I simply don't buy the Daily Mail because I don't like those stereotypical and insinuating headlines. They don't, you know, they're not for me. A lot of people didn't like the satanic verses. A lot of people, many people, most people, don't read Charlie Hebdo. Charlie Hebdo had a minuscule circulation. It's a rather puerile rag that grew out of the 60s. Um, That doesn't matter. Charlie Hebdo's attempt was to satirize everything in a rather puerile way, um, but quite equally. And they stood for a secular public sphere. They satirized the Pope. They satirized Jews who got excessive. They did the whole lot. uh, And they did it in a fairly infantile way. Um, And if they did Mohammed, that was just par for the course. They want a secular public sphere of the kind that grew up in France only with the Third Republic, something I know rather a lot about Mm -hmm. because it's one of my fields of study. And in that time, the argument between church and state was very emphatic. And for once, for the first time since the revolution, the state actually won. And the church got out of certain uh, uh, areas of the public sphere. They didn't get out altogether, of course, because they remained important. And the argument went on. Um, And so I think Charlie Hebdo's satire comes from that, if you like, secular space. My sense of our own democracy in the West is that if you are going to have many religions and many people of no religion living and working together in a fairly um, amicable way, you need the state to be a secular space. You need it not to back any one religion over another. Otherwise, if it does, you end up with persecution. Free speech ends where the incitement to violence is emphatic and begins. There is no free speech that incites you to take up guns or to shout fire in this room. That's the end of free speech. However, if you have arguments that, um, you know, compel people to feel insulted when they're reading a work of fiction or looking at cartoon, we are in the terrain of speech, free speech, and you can do counter-arguments. There is nothing to stop you. Even with the Daily Mail, there is nothing from step to stop you joining Hacked Off and its monitoring campaign, which is now going on, which says, look, this contributes to racist stereotypes. Look, this contributes to other kinds of gender or religious stereotypes, and this needs to stop. And you can take up that campaigning function. You cannot take up the campaigning function in Saudi Arabia because you get locked up. Okay, your bloggers are put in jail. We're going to talk about the internet after. But I'll just say that. Thank you. Uh, Peter, let's bring you in. Uh, I'll, just, I'll try to be very quick and uh, bring, bring in a, a few things. Um, maybe just one thing just to, just to, in response to what people are saying. I think it's always important to bear in mind the distinction between, when we talk about the limits on the freedom, freedom of expression and those sorts of things, the distinction between not liking something or it a matter of civility or moral repugnance or whatever it might be and criminalizing certain forms of speech. So that's, that's just one thing, where the, the curb is a criminal, it makes it a criminal, a criminal act in one form or another. So that's just one thing to throw in. But as I said right at the beginning, uh, I, I'm, one of the ways in which I'm aware of myself <laughs> contributing here and why I'm less uh, confident than Lisa is about say, talking about the West is that 
I, if, you, if you wanted, to, I'm slightly worried about us becoming a bunch of free speech lovies, so I'm going to try to argue the other, the other case, the other case a little bit. Um, you know, you're aware of the fact that we live in a, a, um, um, a, a democracy which has a very specific set of traditions and, as I said, intersecting with other other traditions, in which there is. Uh, so, there's one thing about the the English tradition in particular, historically. Uh, free speech is, is associated with this odd thing called English liberties, which was more or less what was left over once all the curbs had been taken into consideration. It wasn't actually positively defined in that historical tradition by some you know, constitutional uh, articulation. But we have had other things intersect with that tradition in all sorts of ways, and one of them is the, the, um, the European Convention on Human Rights in 1950, and I think you can cite just about any other major document to do with the freedom of expression in which you will generally find there is a clear statement about uh, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, first, first clause. Then there's a whole lot of stuff about it where it's actually very clearly located with public authorities and interference by public authorities, which raises a, a set of questions. But there's always a second clause. And the second clause reads like this. The exercise of these freedoms since it carries with it duties and responsibilities, may be, subject to su again, may be subject to such formalities, conditions, restrictions, or penalties as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society. Those are all very conditional clauses being added there. And then the list starts. In the interests of national security, territorial integrity, or public safety, for the prevention of disorder or crime, for the protection of health or morals, for the protection of reputation of rights of others, and so on. An interesting 1950, they're still using that Victorian idea of public morals, still comes in. Uh, so, you know, this, this is everywhere. You'll see those sorts of uh, legislation. The one thing that I thought, because of people have mentioned the um, uh, satanic verses and so on, I'll just very quickly throw, throw in a reference to South Africa because it does uh, complicate this. When you look at that sort of legislation, when we talk about it in these sorts of terms, it's often understood, and this is particularly also relates to hate speech and so on, that there's the freedom of expression versus something else, where that something else trumps the freedom of expression, or vice versa. So when you've got these two competing rights or values, if you like, uh, the, 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 the relationship is often understood as one of trumping. It's either this or that. You put it in a simple either or. One of the extraordinary things about the South African Constitution, which makes uh, Ray might, and others here might be able to update me on this, but as I understood it, it was unique in the world of constitutions, is it has an extraordinary final uh, section in the Bill of Rights, which is called the Limitation of Rights Section 36, which is a form of the proportionality clause. And what's interesting about that particular clause is it's precisely meant to move away from the trumping model. So it's not either or, but there can be versions of, of some aspect of this and some aspect of that. It's a complex decision. So the other key thing that we're not in a sense talking about is who makes all these decisions? Where are they made? In what sort of context? About what sort of limitations are imposed? So the, uh, the, the case, I won't go into the detail, very, very briefly, the, the satanic verses, there's also a lot of theater about censorship in all sorts of forms. The satanic verses was originally banned by the apartheid state in 1989. It was, I think, the third country after Pakistan, India. Uh, South Africa then banned it. It, was, uh, it looked like the state was being sympathetic to Muslims. It was uh, clearly something orchestrated by the security apparatus to try to disrupt the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, um, there, there's that. So there's, don't, don't, don't think that there, 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 there aren't, there's a lot of political 
theatricalities around these, surrounding these sorts of things. That happened in 1988. Legislation changed. South Africa has one of the most progressive constitutions. The world comes into effect in 1996. In 2002, the very same Muslim groups, when the satanic verses was technically going to be unbanned, uh, um, protested again at the possibility of it being unbanned. And uh, because of the nature of the structure that they have in South Africa, there's a specific tribunal, uh, it's called the Film Publication Board, uh, which used to be the censorship apparatus, where a group of people have to make a decision. And a committee made a decision, and they said, this is not a, there's no law about blasphemy, by the way, on the issue of South Africa, there's no blasphemy law. There is, however, a religious hatred uh, legislation. They said this is not uh, hatred against Islam or any religion. They made that decision categorically. They also said, under the legal structure, we cannot ban this. Uh, However, they then invoked Section 36. And they said, well, we recognize, on the other hand, that uh, Muslims in South Africa have been deeply wounded by this work, uh, that there is a deep sense of, 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 of offense. And we feel that the state must find some way, if you like, of recognizing that. Not simply defending Rushdie, which they did as well, and so what they did was, uh, there are a whole lot of other complications which I won't go into, but they said, okay, it's got to have an 18 restriction on the book. And they said, uh, commercial booksellers cannot put it on their bookshelves. So they made that, that's a, that was a proportionality argument. That it's, people can still access it, people can buy it. Of course, you can get it over the internet, they recognize that. But uh, commercial booksellers wouldn't be able to put it on their shelves. That is still the letter of the law in South Africa, but again, we shouldn't be too uh, romantic about laws and legal systems. Uh, it's largely now, in the last uh, four or five years, ignored by bookstores, and nothing happens. Fantastic. Lisa, you wanted to pick up on something that... I think I did, but I think I forgot or I self-censored. I don't know which. <laughs> um, I think I just, I just wanted to throw into this... Um, Competing, and this is not to do with. I agree with you that the trumping idea is the wrong idea, um, uh, but the, in terms of competing freedoms, uh, I think you know the right to free expression came as a result of the Second World War. Um, and, and just to introduce the satire note, one of the first things that Hitler did um, when he came into power was to say there will be to ban satire, to close the cabarets. Uh, you can't have satire and dictatorship. <laughs> and so free speech became very important for numerous reasons we haven't got time to go into after the Second World War. Um, um, it was not possible under the dictatorships, as we know, and for a long time before we had any even thoughts about insult um, and offence, um, we had... Zamestad coming from Russia because that was the literature that wasn't allowed to be read there and so it, was, it came in hidden means into the West. Um, I think I'll leave all that alone. I think all I wanted to say here to throw into the argument is that, is that one of the competing rights that we have is the right to privacy and of course the entire argument about the freedom of the press um, and the extent of free speech in relationship to the press is now seen as a counterweight to the right to privacy. So, um, you know, if Hugh Grant wants to protect his love life from the tabloids, he can fight this in open courts. And it's, it's our, um, 
I think perhaps duty is, is putting it into Victorian a way, but, it, but it's our duty as a public now to think, well, actually, maybe we don't want to read insinuations about people's private lives rather than have this constantly being tested in the courts. Um, so that's, I just wanted to throw that in. Thanks. Well, we've said a lot about what grounds the right to free speech. That was our first question in the beginning. And we also skipped ahead slightly to talk about uh, how the right to free speech can be balanced against other rights. We've got just under 10 minutes left, and we would like to discuss uh, how threats to the right to free speech have changed over the years. Um, So perhaps I'll bring in Peter just to quickly say something um, about that, and then we'll try and make some room for questions uh, afterwards. Um, Peter, how have the right to fr- how have the threats to the right to free speech changed? Are they the same today as they were in the past? Well, it is interesting that um, just looking at that 1950 European Convention on Human Rights uh, statement, where the, foc- the focus is on um, uh, it says uh, this right shall the freedom of expression uh, this right shall include freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart information and ideas without interference by public authority and regardless of frontiers. So the key issue there is public authority is the threat, uh, and, and, and the threat of interference comes, comes from that. Um, I, I think uh, we've uh, mention has been made of uh, Charlie Hebdo, the production of fear, yes, the th- and the threat of violence. Um, clearly, uh, by non-state actors, is something that has changed. Of course, I know in circumstances, depending on who you're looking at it, it's complicated as precisely who the non-state actors are, what state might lie behind them, what state might be authorizing them. So initially, for instance, the fatwa is clearly a, a, a state or quasi-state action, uh, whereas uh, exactly what, what was going on with Charlie Hebdo uh, is, is a different matter. But the threat of the thre- whether the threat uh, um, is, being, is coming from outside of uh, officially state sanctions, those, that's a key, a key dimension which I think has changed. Uh, but equally, I would say uh, now blurring into the Internet and so on, we have now uh, other things to be aware of, uh, um, exactly what kind of threat they pose and exactly what it might, uh, consequences it might have, um, is major private companies uh, are making all sorts of decisions about the new, not so new, vast public space that is the Internet. I mean, one of the things that clearly uh, we've all experienced, uh, for I'm old enough to have uh, uh, remembered the world of typewriters and green screened computers pre-internet days uh, um, to have you know, witnessed and experienced. I regard it as one of the extraordinary things about my life and my historical moment that I've lived in to watch the arrival of the internet. That has completely changed the notion of public space for humanity. I mean, it's a ma- massive and radical change um, to the notion of public space that any pre- culture before that had, really, in terms of print or orality, uh, a, a radical transformation. And in that context, um, again, I think the issue in particular of ma- major private corporations getting control over aspects of that space, uh, in particular, but not only that space, uh, is, is also another key area where we could see we'd have to look outside of the state uh, this, of course, overlaps with the issues that Ray and so on are asking about the press, which is one of, those, one of those areas outside of the state that is still there. But Google, Amazon, Facebook, the sorts of decisions that they're making, exactly how uh, clear, 
the, um, they are about what their policies are, how they're doing it, etc., etc. I think that's uh, that's another area that I would bring into the picture. So, non-state actors, often backed by violence or the threat of violence, and big private corporations, in one way or another way, commercialising and controlling the public space of the internet. Thank you. Now, I want to open it up, but let's just give our, our panel the opportunity to comment on, on just this point, if either of you... Yeah, uh, I, I would like to agree with the part about um, non-state powers such as corporations. I mean, I think it is quite um, amazing that uh, in the US, corporations are seeking their First Amendment rights, so cigarette companies were wanting to exercise their First Amendment rights to avoid restrictions on what they were supposed to put on their packets and so forth. I mean, free speech, I think, I don't know, I hope we agree that free speech is about people. It's about ordinary people. Um, And and, um, that actually... Um, has implications for the marketplace of ideas thought because if if it were a bunch of uh, non-infantile to pick up another person's question um, if, it, if it were respectful people in discussion trying to find out the truth you know this is sort of Mill's picture that's one thing but if it's the, the huge internet where the, where powerful force powerful economic forces are blaring stuff at us for reasons that have got nothing to do with the gaining of knowledge and everything to do with the gaining of money you know this is not exactly the um the free marketplace of ideas that Mill envisaged. Can I say one other thing about Mill that connects with the internet? So, um, so um, Mill was very sensitive to the context dependence of speech. As many of you probably know, he um, endorsed a harm principle. That's the idea that the only reason that the government could restrict the liberty of a citizen is if if what they're doing is harming other people. So applied to speech, the only case of restriction would be in the case of harm. And that's why Lisa rightly mentioned incitement to violence and so forth as 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 an exception. And Mill himself talked about uh, an example Suppose someone says in the newspaper, um, the corn dealers are the starvers of the poor. This is a bit of political speech. The corn dealers are hoarding corn and they're starving the poor because they're hoarding it. It's one thing to say it in the newspaper. It's another thing to say it in front of a rabble, a crowd, in front of the house of the corn dealer. And And Mill says it will be that latter case of speech should of course be restricted and I presume he was using the harm principle um, to restrict it. But one thing about that context sensitivity of the very same speech act, I mean the very same words, one in a letter to the newspaper, the other in front of the rabble-rousing crowd, um, is that in the context of the internet is much more difficult, isn't it, to make that distinction. So something that is is a cartoon for a little local readership suddenly whoosh, it's right across the globe and everyone can see it, including people who, for, for whom the meaning is very, very different. Um, because all of this meaning about the secular, the, the secular French culture that Lisa spoke of so um, powerfully and plausibly, none of this is there in the meaning of it in this other context. So what does that mean then for the responsibility for our speech? I think this is a real puzzle. Um, the one other thing I want to say about the internet and which connects with Mill is the responsibility. So you're supposed to stand behind your speech because you're putting it forward as your proposed truth. People who are trolling 
anonymously are not standing behind their speech as their contributions to the discussion trying to reach truth. If you're going to say something awful, unless there's a very special reason, and there might be a special reason, people should be putting their names to it. You know, insincere speech um, that is without response, you know, this is, connects with the issue of whether there are responsibilities that also come with rights. Sort of getting your speech out there as this... Um, Sorry, I'm going to shut up. But um, I do think the internet changes things. But of course, it is also an empirical question. Maybe there are respects in which it changes things for the better as well. But those are three places where I think it's changed for the worse. Thanks. I think at this point, we must bring our audience in. We've got time for two to three very succinct questions. Uh, yes, gentlemen on the, my right. So, uh, Evan Harris. Um, Professor Langton's last point, you could have a whole conference on the question of anonymity and whether it should, uh, there should be responsibilities associated with it. I just wanted to make two quick points. One is that, yes, we have seen the threat change in that list of Article, uh, Article 10.2 restrictions. It's more now national security. We're seeing that with the extremism bill where universities, which were previously supposed to have particular statutory regard to freedom of expression, are now going to have to apparently exercise prior restraint on people who may or may not be breaking the law. What, why not, I would say, I'd like to ask the academics on the panel, have a requirement on universities to record outside speakers so that then if they afterwards, if they have broken the law, that that can be approached and not impose prior restraint. The second point I wanted to raise was in respect of hate speech. Because firstly, you cannot have, in my view, hate speech against ideas. Hate speech should be considered to be against individuals. That's why blasphemy laws, which I know a little bit, are absurd, uh, in answer to the second question of the evening. Hate speech can be lawful or unlawful, and there is a... Uh, and, and and that's why we have our religious hatred laws as they were drafted. In this country now, religious hatred, in order to be unlawful, speech that would tend to um, incite hatred against people, people, not ideas, on the basis of their religion, has to be intentional and it has to involve threatening words, not merely words that are in, insulting or abusive. Thanks. Um, I'm going to have to stop you there because we, we are running out of time. But can I just say that <laughs> no one forces... Let me just say that Evan Harris knows more about free speech than all of us here put together and should really be up here. Evan, do you want to come No, no, no. No one forces anyone, by the way, to read the satanic verse. I don't care how many prostitutes are named. No one is tied down and forced to listen to it, read out, or read it. So there's, And similarly, Charlie Hebdo, it's not about scattering them from a helicopter over, over uh, Muslim cities or handing them out and forcing them into people's hands in Brick Lane. There is a difference therefore and there can be no basis for restrictions on criticisms of ideas even if they cause offence. As long as people are warned if you're offended don't read it. I think we've got time for one very quick question. Uh, yes, gentlemen over on my far left. If you wait for the, for the mic to come. Hello there. I think we can all agree that um, freedom of speech has certain limitations, but I think the interesting debate is between the grey area between the freedom of speech and the limitations. So I wanted to ask um, the panel whether they thought Edward Snowden's disclosure of intelligence files was a heroic act of freedom of speech to further other freedoms like the right to privacy, or whether it was a dangerous and illegal act. Okay, thanks very much. Well, let's pick up on those two, and then I'm afraid we'll have to finish. The first point was about extremism. Lisa, would you like to pick up on that? Was that I didn't quite 
the gentleman's point about, about ex- extremism um, and free speech and national security. Me. Okay. I, oh, ahead, okay. No, 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 please, please, go ahead. Just that the UN International Convention on Hate Speech does mention ideas. Shall declare an offence punishable by law all dissemination of ideas based on racial superiority or hatred. Anyway, and the UK has signed up. That's all. Okay, Lisa? Um, I've, I've kind of lost it with all the questions, but I did want to say one more thing about threat and danger of free speech, the greatest danger to free speech um, coming out of the internet. And and this is something that I don't think many people have talked about, and I'd, I'd just like to throw it into the soup, if you like, because I do think the Internet, which I thought was the most wonderful um, and still think is an extremely wonderful disseminator of knowledge and ideas and access for people to actually you know, do their own writing online and, and, and so on and so forth. I think one of, one of the dangers of the Internet, and this is a kind of psychological point, is that it actually... Um, moves the line from private to public without any kind of liminal space. There's no threshold between the private and the public. And the kind of trolling that you get, this, this, this kind of vituperative hatred that is put out online in the Twitter sphere, in blogs, in comments, free if it weren't monitored by somebody on the inside is simply to do with that and I I don't know how we get over that but I think we actually need to become so used to this mechanism, this dream space of our own scream in our own bedroom or office or in the home in any case or inside our minds it's as if it's part of our minds um, that we actually recognize that this is going out into the public sphere I know for example that I'm very angry in the mornings when I listen to the news. I'm in a rage. I hear these things and sometimes I'm also offended. If I would were then to go and write and immediately press the button and send it out, this would not be a good thing. I would be enacting not criminal hate speech, but a lot of hatred would be out there. And I think this is really um, one of the dangers that we we need to think about in this area of speech. I'm I'm just sharing it. Thanks. And let's pick up on a final question, which is a very specific question about free speech and national security. And you mentioned Ed- Edward Snowden. Right. Um, who would like to have a go at that? Was it an exercise of, of free speech or was it uh, a compromise of national security? I'll say something very quickly about that. Um, so, again, uh, I think, you know, in the way that we don't need to, we, we can't talk about free speech in the abstract. We can't talk about the kind. We have to talk about specific legal jurisdictions, specific histories, all those things that carry a lot of weight. So, um, the, as I understand it, whoever makes the decisions in America about what his actions might mean legally, I would uh, certainly disagree with it because of the legislation, like the Patriot Act, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that might be invoked, which is extreme forms of legislation covering issues of national security. So there's that side of it. From my, from my, from my, speaking for myself, because again, uh, uh, personally, because of my work and what I do, I'm going to be a, a free speech extremist uh, in, 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 in all situations. I'll try to argue that case. I'm going to, I'm going to give him straight public interest defense for what he did. And uh, in particular, um, I'm going to give it even more encouragement and support because of the effects that it had. Not only was it a public interest intervention of... of, of some significance and importance, but it was effective because of the way that the legislation is changing in the US today. 
Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. We could easily have gone on for another hour and a half. So it just remains to thank our panellists, Peter McDonald, Lisa Pinnanese, Ray Langton and Stephen Lord.